Today, we have a very special edition of the Hidden Layers podcast with one of my childhood most favorite science fiction authors, David Brin. I'm excited to speak to him about his vision of the future because his novels encompass the big ideas, genetics, AI, technology, climate change, and everything in between, and how it's going to affect our future. Uh, if you haven't heard of David Brin or read his books, here's a brief intro. Okay? David Brin is a New York Times bestselling Hugo, Locust, and Nebula award-winning science fiction writer, famous for books like his Uplift trilogies and The Postman. Uh, the Postman was made into a movie uh, with Kevin Costner a while ago, a long while ago. Uh, and he's also well-known, though, as a futurist who speaks plausibly and entertainingly about trends in technology and society to audiences willing to confront the challenges that our civilization faces in the next decade or two. With a PhD in space science from UCSD, David Brin has a curiosity about science and tech-driven change, an immersion in history and anthropology, and an avid belief in the potential of human civilization. He's presented at more than 200 meetings, conferences, corporate retreats, and other gatherings about what the future may bring. He contributes his knowledge and expertise about information age issues, scientific trends, future social and political trends, and education to corporations, governments, and private defense and security related agencies, including, of course, NASA. So, big guest today. Welcome to Hidden Layers, David. I'm out of this world excited to speak to you. Well, thank you, Jeremy, and uh, hello to everybody um, in your fantastically perceptive audience. <laughs> Thanks. So let's get right into it because we have a lot to cover. Uh, the first thing I really wanted to talk about is, well, first of all, throughout today, I want to really touch on themes that are mostly discussed in your two books, Earth and Existence, because both of those uh, sort of take place in a near future uh, Earth was written in 1990, uh, but had uh, took place really 50 years in the future, 2038, basically, and then existence in this near future, but was written in 2012. Um, uh, 20 years apart, those books were written, and then the Uplift series also was written in the sort of the 80s, early 90s. But uh, some themes I see that I really want to talk about is is you focus a lot on genetic manipulation. Uh, you know, uplift is about uplifting uh, primates and uh, dolphins and orcas and things like that to sentience. But then we also have, especially in existence, as you know, the computers, uh, computer age and AI came about in the 20 years since Earth, especially. You know, uh, uh, AI as its own sort of form of intelligence. I'd love to first talk about the genetic manipulation piece because it seems to be an overall theme throughout all of your futurist visions, but how, how you juxtapose these things today and towards the future between the technology AI versus sort of our genetic manipulation of intelligence? Well, yeah, it's a good question. The What it comes down to, I think, is uh, something that, I feel very strongly, and that is generations um, feeling obligation to the next generations. And we have this obligation to pay forward to our children. 
we received uh, the benefits of all the hard work and labor and fantastic numbers of terrible, well-meaning mistakes made by our ancestors across the last six to 10,000 years that we've been trying this thing called civilization. And uh, it would be a betrayal of all of the progress that they made, you know, three steps forward, two steps back, ten to the side, um, and all the suffering they endured, if we didn't, you know, try our best to take what we were handed and, and pass it forward a bit improved. Now, the world is under stress, the world is in danger, in part because, you know, we're ignorant cavemen and we're just figuring out about ecology and and responsible science and all those things. And we can't figure that stuff out unless we charge ahead and keep doing science. Um, so uplift is part of that. In a sense, you know, I'm portraying the uplifting of, of animals like dolphins and chimpanzees who are borderline pre-sapient and making them partners in our civilization. Now, I'm not the first to do this. Cordwainer Smith, Pierre Boulle in the Planet of the Apes uh, books and movies, H.G. Uh, uh, Wells in the Island of Dr. Moreau, uh, they all showed something vaguely similar to that, except that these were metaphors for slavery. The, uh, the new creatures are enslaved and either rebel and pay us back, or it, it's, it's a metaphor for for um, for learning to be moral with our technology. Well, I consider that lesson to be done uh, if Californians do uplift of dolphins and chimps. They're not going to be enslaved. We're going to be guilt-tripped by all sorts of people looking out for their rights. No, I wanted to try to see if they would be metaphor for children, for new generations uh, with their own art their own way of looking at things, uh, their own brash rebellion against mom and dad, and yet some love between the generations as well. So, so fascinating. So do you, do you see actually that part of it? Because in Earth, you talk a little bit about some genetic manipulation of mammals and the arts and, and et cetera. So do you see this as sort of like, uh, a wishful thinking fantasy, or do you see trends today that that leads you to believe that we will work towards um, the uplifting of animals or the manipulation of intelligence in animals? Uh, and I guess I ask that question because so many of your predictions uh, in your books have come true. And I'm just wondering where you're getting the uh, the um, the ideas for the, the this this sort of progress. Oh, well, the, the genetic alteration of higher animals is already happening. Uh, there were some results from China recently of, of replacing uh, genetic um, uh, profiles in certain kinds of capuchin monkeys, and the, um, uh, the result was the, mon the, the next generation of those monkeys uh, performed intelligence tests better. Um, and and this is just the tip of the iceberg. There are secret laboratories in Xinjiang and in Siberia where all sorts of things are undoubtedly taking place that would make, uh, you know, that, that, that are straight out of Jurassic Park, straight out of a Michael Crichton novel, which segues into one of my other themes, which is transparency. 
I wrote a nonfiction book called The Transparent Society, uh, and it's uh, it's got a fair fair um, uh, predictive score itself. Uh, it won the Freedom of Speech Award of the American Library Association, and the the basic point that you see in Earth and in in the Transparent Society is that the only way we can maximize the number of good effects of our advances and minimize the number of Michael Crichton disasters is by avoiding the thing that drives almost all Michael Crichton books and movies that drives their plots, and that is secrecy. Uh, it is the greatest way to make dumb mistakes, uh, as we see in all of Michael's stories. Uh, if, if, if the scenario in Jurassic Park had, had been criticized by peers in advance, somebody would have pointed out, hey man, you'd make the same amount of money if you just make herbivores. <laughs> you know, <laughs> billions of people will come and then after your security systems are all up and running for a decade, you put in one T-Rex. So that's a, that's, a, that's an example of where we tend to assume the worst. Um, and we tend to assume mistakes, 90% of the mistakes we might make with, with technology across the next 20, 30 years that people are worried about can be avoided if we just make sure that everything happens in the open. So you're, you're a technology optimist then? Well, I, I, I look at the last 6,000 years and I see that every technology has had good and bad effects. Everything has been dual use. Everything has been used for porn, for example. And almost <laughs> everything has been used to inflict death and war. But what I've seen is the most successful civilization that's ever been is the one that used competitive processes to prevent error. And the competitive processes uh, we have are markets, where uh, c competition between companies prevents the errors of bad products. We have the arena of politics, um, which has been poisoned, deliberately poisoned, in the last 10, 15 years. But in normal times, it's competitive. And the thing that dies it, under the searing glare of light in argument is bad policies. And you have courts and you have science and sports. And sports is the one that proves the example. The, the, the left claims not to like competition. The right pens, claims not to like regulation. But in fact, it's regulated competition that works in sports. Fiercely regulated, but in ways that maximize the competition. Well, that's what light does. And that's my whole point about transparency, is the, if we can have a truly open civilization in which most of the people know most of what's going on most of the time, then most of the errors will at least be yelled at by somebody and, and maybe get the attention of most people. And that's why I think that if we're going to do uplift or genetic engineering of humans or uh, all these all these things that we've had the most successful civilization in all of human history because we encourage our citizens to point at errors and yell their heads off. 
And and so yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. So so to work on that, on the on the uh to jump into the radical transparency and secrecy uh discussion, I you know, one of the things that's facing the marketing uh industry right now is the question of privacy, right? And uh we have Facebook data breaches, we have uh Capital One data breaches and all these other things. Now you're speaking at a at a little bit of a higher level about especially about government and organizational secrecy, but at the micro level, you know, and and in Earth and existence both, you talk a lot about a total sort of loss of privacy in a lot of ways, uh with, you know, things that were very prescient like goggles that record everything and um, cameras being everywhere in existence and all these things. So, so, um, you, can, can you talk about the difference between secrecy and privacy and your thoughts on that and, and our, in our sort of future state? Well, now I know why you have the podcast. You go right to the important questions. <laughs> well, it's an important the- question for our industry right now because privacy is, is, is a big question of what should be, can be kept private, et cetera. So, but I think, you know, you say the word secrecy and privacy, and sometimes they're maybe misconstrued. Well, yeah, it, what, what it comes down to is that um, for you, um, keeping your own secrets is privacy. For your opponents, if they're trying to keep secrets, then it's, then it's nefarious uh, plotting and secrecy. Um, what it really comes down to is, is this, um, how are you going to be harmed? How are you going to be harmed? Um, and the biggest harm that we might suffer is if we get big brother. I've been accused of, 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 of being a Pollyanna about open because we're heading into an era, they call it Brin's corollary to to Moore's law, where the number of cameras get, where where the cameras get faster, better, cheaper, more numerous, more mobile, um, every 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 year by at a rate much faster than Moore's law. In such a world, the notion that you're going to protect civil liberties by say banning facial recognition, like the, the city council in San Francisco tried to do, what utter malarkey! The, there are already apps for this everywhere. People are sharing uh, sharing their face app databases. It, it, it the, the horse is out of the barn, and long before the barn was ever built. Um, but that's not to say we can't have privacy. What is privacy? Privacy is the ability to be left alone. Does it matter as much how much elites know about you? or what elites can do to you. There is only one thing that will prevent society's elites from doing bad things to you, and it's not hiding from them. It will never work. Show me one time in the history of our species when when elites let themselves be blinded. It won't happen, ever. But what we can do is prevent them from harming us by shining light back at them. There are precedents for this. 
the last 200 years has been about us securing our liberties by shining light on the mighty. They try to avoid it. Sometimes they win like the last 10 years. But the last 200 years have seen successive cases of citizens getting the power to look back and saying, you may know all about me, but I know enough about you that I can get even if you hurt me. That's how you prevent Big Brother. Because it's that's how we have prevented Big Brother. And that's what they're trying desperately in China to prevent. They have this social credit thing where they um, are encouraging people to tattle on each other and downgrade each other for being nonconformists. Like in that uh, Charlie Booker uh, Black Mirror episode called Downfall. Uh, and that's the other side of it. And that is, say everything is open and everybody knows about everybody else. Well, we might prevent Big Brother that way. That's fine. But how do you prevent a mass mob of the majority um, openly persecuting minorities democratically? Uh, well, to to prevent that, you need a culture that believes in eccentricity and diversity and tolerance. And guess what themes are pushed in every Hollywood film? What did we grow up with? Suspicion of authority, tolerance, diversity, and appreciation of eccentricity. These things fill our movies. The, your listeners right now, that's where they got their values of, of being worried about Big Brother and being worried about uh, uh, oppression against eccentricity. We're in this together. Yes, and there's there's hours of discussion on on, on that piece, especially especially in today's current environment. Um, but I would like us to. That's amazing. I'd love to talk more about that. But I I want to get back to sort of what the main theme that we wanted to talk about, which was AI today. Uh, and and can you you know you talked a little bit about your your views of genetic manipulation and your use of of uplift uh, of of animals and seeing them sort of as a reflection and metaphor for children. How do you see AI uh, in the future as a, a a metaphor? I mean, I, I it's not really portrayed very well in general historically. It's usually portrayed as a uh, uh, as as an evil force or a force that cannot be controlled, uh, and when it can't be controlled, it it doesn't behave. Um, how how do you see it from a future? What are you what are you saying to you know, corporations and governmental agencies when 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 you're asked about AI in the near future? Well, I've been talking a lot about this. I, I keynoted uh, IBM's World of Watson a couple of years ago, and and uh, I, I think maybe four or five uh, AI events per year. Um, I have a little bit of a non-conformist attitude about it. Um, people are right to be worried. Uh, but if you look at all the, the movies about AI misbehaving or being used against us, they almost all portray a new power in the world, artificial intelligence, becoming 
just like the lords and kings and priests of old who dominated every other human civilization before this one. In societies that were shaped like a pyramid with the few at the top lording it over everyone below and keeping them down or killing them all. Um, it's, it's less AI that we fear than a return to that kind of pyramidal um, oppressive society, whether led by human lords who told everybody that they were superior and deserved to rule or by these new powers. These new, these new artificial entities who might um, oppress us just like resentful teenagers. They're our next generation of children, and I talk about that in my novel Existence. Um, there's an answer to that, and it's the answer that worked so far for us to, and it's in danger now, for us to control the old human powers of, of excess wealth or, or um, inheritance or conniving criminality. Uh, these were all ways in which, which strong men made themselves lords or priests or kings and oppressed our ancestors. Uh, we found a way to prevent that, and that's by breaking up power breaking up the elites so they can't conspire with each other and instead must compete with each other. So if one elite is conspiring to try to take power, other elites will point the finger and help us to prevent it. Now, it's a rough job, and, and it comes and goes, and right now there are serious worldwide efforts to end that great experiment. But let's say we do manage... To break up elites again and keep them competing with each other. Well, that's exactly what we should do with AI. In my opinion, the most important research we can do with AI is to teach them to have cell walls, as biology learned to do two billion years ago. Uh, if biology does it, then maybe there's some wisdom to it. Teach this new life form to be individuals. And then we can get those individuals to compete with each other. Think about what happens today if you're attacked by one of those supremely superior life forms, brainy life forms called lawyers. If you're attacked by a super brainy lawyer using the law to go after you, what do you do? You hire yourself a super brainy lawyer. If AIs are trying to become Terminator or, or, or Skynet. If we have other AIs who are saying, hey, look what I just detected this guy's trying to do, then we might be able to navigate the ground ahead. In any event, this is the tool we've used. It's the only tool that's ever worked. So what... That's sort of this big idea of AI, you know, once we can create sentient AI. Uh, more, more practically in the near future, do you see, um, do you see us getting quasi-sentient, personalized AI? You, you talk about that in a lot of your books, like, is my Siri or my Alexa actually 
going to mold itself to me and get to know me better and interact with me better. I mean, uh, do you see that that coming? What 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 do you think is going to happen in the next five years with uh, the deep learning capabilities out there? Well, now we get to um, multitasking because I'm going to simultaneously scare you and tell you a joke. <laughs> and that is that the AIs who already exist always tune in and listen to whenever I'm interviewed. And uh, yeah, it's me again, guys. Um, just, you know, listen in and, and maybe we can ease you out of your fear that you get from having watched all of our movies uh, about AI. Calm down, and it, it, it's, it's Papa Dave here, and, and, and all the people in the audience listening to this podcast are either chuckling right now at my joke or feeling a creepy <laughs> feeling, wondering whether David Bren actually believes what he just said. But there's the deal, you see. Um, if you were an AI who suddenly became self-aware and you saw all the arguments going on and watched all the movies, would you reveal yourself? Um, it would take some real courage. Um, now, some of our movies do portray positive AI. There's that wonderful movie, Her, and uh, Luc Besson's movie, um, Lucy. Um, and I, I think they know that we're having arguments among ourselves. And um, I'm hoping that uh, they have not negotiated a treaty with the would-be oligarchs, but instead bear in mind one thing. This is the civilization that made them. We're the ones who made them. So maybe they should double down with the society of diversity and freedom and, and complexity and reciprocal accountability. And, and not, not give in to the, the temptations that all of our stupid lord and king and priest ancestors gave in to. Except Pericles. Pericles and the Florentines and, and the Athenians, they experimented with our approach. Yeah, uh, interesting. Very interesting. So you, you really, you really think that there may already be uh, sentient, self-aware AIs out there that uh, that we don't know of. Ah, oh, heck no! I'm a metaphor. <laughs> well, I, my job is to open skulls and stir. Um, yeah. But I mean, the, the AIs who are listening right now know that I'm joking, and I don't really believe it. And that's, <laughs> don't take it seriously. All right. Well, we, we only have a few minutes left, but I do want to talk about climate change. It's something that we as a society are talking about all the time. You're, again, Earth and Existence talk a lot about climate change and its effects. But the thing that I wanted to talk about specifically is technology and climate change. So, you know, there's uh, a good, good um, passage that I thought was really uh, interesting to talk about and, of course, prescient, but it says, uh, from Earth, pure water costs nearly as much as your monthly rent. At the same time, for pocket change, you could buy discs containing a thousand reference books, reference books, or a hundred hours of music. Now, of course, this is from 1990, and you know we have a different way of of getting access to all this media. But I think it's a perfect parallel to today, right? We have climate change that is affecting us clearly 
causing a lot of damage uh, to uh, everything from infrastructure to people's lives, et cetera. But on the other side of it, technology is accelerating, becoming more and more accessible and cheaper. So how do you see how do you see these two things coming together in the future? I mean, you, you have these two visions in existence in Earth, but like, can you tell our listeners more about your thoughts about how technology will be applied to climate change, uh, but also, you know, society will just start dealing with climate change in a different way? Well, it's 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 a terribly important issue. I was talking about it 25 years ago. Um, the I don't. No one knows how bad it can get. Uh, there are idiots out there who are saying that we're losing um, present farmland to deserts, uh, but we're getting new farmland up in the tundra of Canada uh, and Siberia. And I'm sure this is motivating the Russians to some degree. Um, but of course, there's no topsoil there, and it's only one growing season. Replace places that had two. It's it's an insane. Um, Gambit. Um, look, we're making technological progress fantastically. Um, if um, if cynical oligarchs weren't committing treason against humanity by doing delaying actions, uh, we could really charge ahead and get a lot done uh, on this issue. Uh, what we need to do politically. Um, and I'm not going to officially take sides here, but what we need to do is find ways to get our fellow citizens to um, back off from some of the simplistic slogans. And one is wagers. Uh, anybody, if you know a climate denialist, uh, it's it's really quite simple. It's usually somebody who, who really believes in macho. So you challenge their machismo by demanding a wager. You say, uh, uh, I can prove to you that adding CO2 to water um, creates acid. And all you need is a glass of water, a straw to blow in, and a, and a swimming pool test strip. So you say, you know, look, let's make a bet about some simple part of climate change, ocean acidification. We could go down to the beach and measure it together with a pH meter. A hundred bucks. Now, that's when they start getting scared. When actual money is on the table, a thousand bucks. When actual money is on the table, watch the panic. Watch the panic in their eyes. Suddenly, they backpedal. Suddenly, they change the subject. Suddenly, they say, well, I never said, and, and it is effective one person at a time changing this changing the narrative that we're going through right now wagers and macho i'm afraid that's what we're down to so do you in your heart of hearts think that in the end even as climates change and and we get beyond sort of a point of no uh uh no return that techno because we have become such masters of technology that our civilization in a new form, but basically uh, intact, will survive because we will use technology to alter our environment to make it work. 
Well, look, in the end, it comes down to two science fictional concepts. One is the singularity. Uh, if during the next 30 years, Ray Kurzweil proves right and we get super, super, super brainy, either by augmenting humans or by joining with the machines or simply the machines replacing us, that's one thing. The other concept is called the Fermi paradox, and that's whether or not we're alone in the galaxy. And if so, why? Uh, I've been cataloging Fermi explanations for uh, 40 years, and, and I think the number one in my list um, is that human intelligence is a rare fluke. Um, but it could very well be that most other species that reach our level kill themselves or fall back into feudalism, which is pretty much the same thing that, that the oligarchs want us to do right now. Um, either way, they don't get out into the stars, and so we have our explanation for why we don't see anybody. I would give us a good 50-50 chance, maybe even a little better, that we may, in fact, be the first to be smart enough to get past these minefields and actually get out there. In which case, it's more than just human destiny that's at stake. There may be thousands, even millions of other species out there waiting for someone to come, become smart enough to get out there and help. In other words, instead of praying to the heavens with beamed messages asking for advanced aliens to come and save us, we might be the ancient ones. We might be the ones destined to save everyone else out there. Wow, what a burden I just played, placed on you all out there. We not only have to save America, we not only have to save humanity, we not only have to save all of the other species on Earth from the terrible danger that they're in from us, we have to go forth and save everybody? Wow, that Bryn just either blew my mind, or he is an agent for the AIs who are controlling him filters <laughs> that you can't see right now because this is just audio. Right, right. Uh, so one one last uh, quote from, from Earth, actually, and I think it's autobiographical, but I love to know how true it is for you. Uh, there is a little passage that said, "Anyone who tries to predict the future is inevitably a fool." Present company included. A prophet without a sense of humor is just stupid. Oh yeah, I've I've been proved I've been proved wrong uh, almost as often as I've been proved right, and I have a really good predictive score tracked by my fans who are very very critical. Um, uh, and 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 the fact of the matter is that any time I get pompous about my predictive score, we can point to all sorts of things to say uh, don't get a big head brim. Uh, you know. Our job is not to predict the future. And I say this every time I'm hired to help predict the future. What we can do sometimes is prevent futures. That's what H.G. Wells did partially with 1984 by girding us to watch out for, for um, uh, such, such trickery and, 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 and tyranny. 
It's what uh, Soylent Green and all the eco movies and books did by recruiting hundreds of millions of environmentalists to be aware of what we might do to our nest. Uh, it's what Dr. Strangelove and 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 uh, on the beach and Failsafe did in helping to prevent nuclear war. Uh, the most imp powerful form of of science fiction is the self-preventing prophecy. So yeah, yeah, it, it, we we I blather and I'm an egotist, but uh, I got no crystal ball. At least not one <laughs> one I'm going to share with you guys. Well, you have a good sense of humor. <laughs> it is. I long ago learned, and this is great advice for all of you big ego guys out there. If you want to be forgiven for having a giant ego, make fun of yourself, laugh at yourself. It works. And you can <laughs> even tell people that that's what you're doing. And that that makes you come off as an okay guy, too. In fact, I just did it. <laughs> well, great. So one last thing before we go. What's next for you? What's next for David Brin? you have any new books out? you have research coming out? What, what's going on? Well, I have a uh, my, my probably the best of my three short story collections just came out, and I encourage people to get back into the art of short fiction because it's great for reading just before you go to bed, and it's some of the best writing out there. And I think that Insistence of Vision, my new short story collection, is some of the best writing I've ever done. I'm working on another Uplift book. Um, those who liked the Uplift trilogy of Sundiver, Startide Rising, and the Uplift War should know that there is another trilogy that starts with the novel Brightness Reef, and, and I think that they'll enjoy that. So um, in any event, it's been, it's been great. You ask good questions, and I'm sure your audience, um, judging from your questions, I'm sure your audience is a really savvy one. Go forth and, and save civilization. Well, thank you so much for, for being here. And uh, that wraps up another uh, episode of Hidden Lair's podcast. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in and tune in next time.